With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis to all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me as always is the guru, Duncan Castles. Today we're going to be bringing you extensive news on Manchester United, on Manchester City, Aston Villa, on Barcelona, and on Tottenham Hotspur, as well as some news on Burnley, who have made a real effort in order to keep their side together. First, Duncan, we're going to start at Old Trafford. Where it looks like the new football division have been very busy, uh, the protocol and strategy they have in place, mainly for a striker for the next season, as well as players who are exiting, appears to be taking shape. Um, what can you tell us with regards to the detail of that particular plan that they have put in place? Definitely very busy. This, this new setup with Solskjaer at its head in terms of determining which positions need to be recruited in and then the massive scouting team that Ed Woodward is so proud of talking about, providing potential names. John Murto now in an influential role in that transfer committee with his, with his new um, formal position. And uh, Darren Fletcher brought in to assist and, and collaborate with them. and. Um, and work directly with with agents on on getting these deals done. The final determining factor, as always, is the Glazers. Interestingly, I'm being briefed that the football committee, if you want to call it that, does not yet have a clear idea on budget. Um, It will depend on on what the Glazers approve. And as we've been discussing in this podcast for weeks now, that probably comes down to PR perspective of what is seen uh, to have to be spent to appease fans who are uh, literally revolting against the, the Glazer ownership. However, within, the, within that context, there is a, a, a clear priority for um, Solskjaer and his recruitment specialists, and that is that they sign a forward. Now, they have an interesting setup in that they are looking both for a centre forward and for a right-sided forward. But uh, they will probably only sign one of those. Why? Because they feel that bringing a top talent in, in that position, and they're looking at high price, high quality acquisition, can be accommodated within the current squad. Um, If they go for a right-sided player, Jadon Sancho is the... um, most obvious target there, the, the player that they wanted to sign last summer, that they had an agreement on terms with the player, um, felt they could uh, convince Borussia Dortmund to bring down their 120 million asking price, failed to do so. 
in the end. Um, should they bring Sancho or another top quality right winger in, Mason Greenwood would move into a central forward role alongside sharing the position essentially with Edinson Cavani and Anthony Martial would be moved out, as we told you on earlier podcasts. If instead they go for a top quality centre forward and Cristiano Ronaldo is on the list of potential um, acquisitions, as is Erling Haaland, who would be Solskjaer's preference, um, then Mason Greenwood would stay on the right-hand side where he's been playing for the last season and more and share that position with the emerging Ama Giallo and Dan James. So I think that it's quite unusual, but I, I, I see the logic to it. You bring in one of the two and you shift Greenwood basically from one position on the right to the central position if necessary, which is the position that Solskjaer sees him at the end or further into his career as adopting and becoming the, the starting centre forward for United. Ronaldo, as we've said, is of interest to them. He has been offered to them. As we've said, Juventus want to move Cristiano Ronaldo out this summer. Um, that is something that Max Allegri is in favour of doing. Um, they won't say publicly that that's their stance, but it's open secret in football. Ronaldo's been offered to Madrid, who have publicly said no, to Manchester United and to Paris Saint-Germain. Ronaldo's camp think the more likely outcome at present is Paris Saint-Germain. However, there is a strong interest from Manchester United and he could be a resolution to this. I think there's another factor here that we, we should add, which is that Paul Pogba um, has one year left in contract. United are worried that he's going to run that contract down to zero. They're going to lose him without transfer fee, remember. He remains the record signing, remains the most expensive player and in incoming player in the history of English football. They don't want that to happen. Um, it has been hard for Pogba to find another club um, able to pay a transfer fee and prepared to pay his salary and to take on a player who's, because of his behaviour and his time at Manchester United, is seen as a problem individual. However, I can tell you that Max Allegri is. Uh, a fan of Pogba, had a very good relationship with Pogba when they worked together at Juventus and I'm told would be interested in bringing him back to Juventus if that fitted in with the rest of his transfer plans and it could be done in a way that could be accommodated with the limited budget they have. There you have a potential solution in that Ronaldo could be moved to Manchester United should Manchester United decide that is the, the forward player who is the best option for them. Um, a fee could be attached to the deal. Pogba go the other way to Juventus. Again, a fee be attached to the deal. Um, you have a, essentially a financial fair play swap, similar to what uh, Juventus did with Barcelona last summer in taking Artur Melo from Barcelona um, for a substantial um, initial fee of, uh, and have Pjanic, in that case, move back to Barcelona for an initial 60 million euros and, and what that allowed Juventus, allowed both clubs to do because of the way uh, transfer fees are amortised is to book a positive uh, economic effect as they called it for that year's transactions. In Juventus's case they were able to declare a, a, an economic benefit of 41.8 million euros from the swap deal. So, so there's attractions there to both clubs 
um, in terms of a way you can manufacture a deal. But that would depend on United deciding that Ronaldo is the priority. In their discussions with Ronaldo's representative to date, the representatives don't feel that he is being prioritised. They've been told that United are interested, but to wait and see what happens. Um, then, once United have solved that forward position, once they know what degree of, of, of financial cost is involved in that, they will look at other positions. Um, they are looking at centre midfield, they're looking at centre back, they're looking at a backup right back. Already doing work on those, they're identifying targets, but they don't know how many they'll be able to do and um, how much they'll be able to allocate to those positions until they're sure what happens with the forward. This is a project made a lot more difficult, Duncan, by the Euros, um, as we've known from experience. Getting a player to complete a medical while on international duty uh, is complex, to say the least, because the manager of the national team do not want a player leaving the camp. Um, so in order to furnish just quite so many players in one window when there's a month-long tournament ahead, does seem to be very, very ambitious. Yeah, it's more, it's more complex. And, and I think it, it's made more difficult because the people involved don't actually know what the budget is. They're dependent on, and, and this has been the Glazers' way throughout their time, um, when they've been running the club, um, which is each individual deal has to be presented to them, the finances of it presented to them, and they sign off one by one. So that complicates it. And if they had a set budget, then they'd be able to... Uh, organize this um, I think a bit more strategically. Um, interesting what Solskjaer has been saying about recruitment. He gave an interview in, in Norway um, last week where he said we want the best players here and the club knows what I want. I do not know how the dialogue goes but we, if we are to fight for the best trophies we must have the best players. Um, which is a you know it's an interesting comment from it. It's been perceived by some Manchester United supporters as him putting pressure on the board. Uh, you could also run that argument the other way and say uh, if they're going to compete for the best trophies, um, given that they have one of the best squads around at present already, maybe the more efficient way would be to change the manager and get better value out of the players they've already got instead of being stuck with a manager who two and a half years in has yet to win a, a trophies as has Manchester United on their, their longest trophy drought for over three um, decades. And, uh, and generally, I think, has, has failed to add value in terms of results on the field and in terms of actually bringing silverware in. So two factors are going to be very important in this particular uh, strategy. One will be how much the Glazers are willing to furnish uh, for transfers, the other will be, of course, who they can sell and how much money they can get for them. Two other players, Duncan, who will be involved in the Euros um, and who are also involved in a, effectively a swap deal are Bernardo Silva of Portugal and Sol Maguez of Spain. Um, Atletico and Manchester City seem to be on the same wavelength with regards to uh, what they both want and need out of those players, but as yet no agreement as far as we know. Yeah, and this is an offer, it's a proposal from Atletico um, that Manchester City take 
Salniguez, um, their 26-year-old midfielder, um, one of their club captains. And um, Bernardo Silva comes from Manchester City to Atletico in exchange. I, I don't think this deal is going to happen. I don't think that City are going to prioritise it over other areas that they're looking for. Um, however, I can see the possibility of, of Bernardo going to Atletico. Bernardo wants to leave Manchester City. He, uh, I'm told, had a promise that he could leave last year. Um, after a difficult season, you'll remember um, one of the things that happened to him was he, he was handed down a, um, a football association ban after a, a social media post, something that he took very badly. I uh, was not impressed with that. There's also a factor that he is keen to leave Manchester. He, he, hasn't, he doesn't enjoy Manchester life um, and would like to, to move to a different climate. But there's an expectation on the, his side that be a, he will be allowed to leave this summer, um, I think there's a potential for, a, for an alternative FFP swap deal, if you like, because this, this is a similar um, proposal to the, the Artur Pjanic one. Um, Atletico do need to sort out their FFP situation. Um, so you would put a high value on Saul or another player and put a high value on Bernardo and take that um, amortization benefit to both sides. Um, on your, your books. Um, remember, City are very interested in Jean-Felix. They wanted to sign that player before he went to Atletico. In fact, they told him, we want to bring you here. We can't do it in this, this summer. That was 2019. Please wait a year. We'll take you then. Uh, Felix wanted his move from Benfica, immediately decided to go to Atletico. It hasn't worked for him. As we told you in earlier podcasts, he's unhappy there doesn't like the relationship with Diego Simeone, doesn't like the way he, he has trained him, made him play through injuries, um, where he's been selected, um, has very good figures for them in, in terms of goals and assists per appearances um, and expects to leave this summer. So I think there's a, there's an, a scenario where Felix could be offered to Manchester City and Bernardo go the other way. He is not the priority for City at present. They want a replacement um, for Bernardo and want a, a centre forward. But as things pan through, that there's a possibility they'll go back for a player who they, they badly wanted in 2019 and still like. Um, I'm told that what City are focusing on as a replacement for Bernardo and in their, their, their transfer business at present is attacking midfielder and that Jack Grealish is extremely high on their list and they think there is a real possibility of getting him from Aston Villa and pairing him with uh, with Phil Foden in their midfield and building a you know an, an English uh, national team duo um, that could play together you know potentially for 10 years um, and they feel that Aston Villa and I think correctly they feel Aston Villa are, are making preparations um, to cash in on Grealish. Um, Aston Villa actually have, I'm told, a substantial budget to work with. They're one of the, the, the better placed teams in the Premier League post-COVID. This week, they've signed Wendia from Norwich City for an initial £33 million. That is kind of a half replacement for Grealish, as, a, as it's been described to me. And they're looking at other attacking midfielders coming in as well. One of the players they've sounded out is Emile Smith-Rowe at Arsenal, um, who broke into the Arsenal team to great effect this season. 
he is under contract till 2023. Um, so something needs to be done by Arsenal in terms of extending that deal or um, seeing him being tempted uh, by other clubs. I think it would be uh, it would be quite damaging for Arsenal if they were seen to lose a, a young talent like that to um, a club like Aston Villa. But I think it's telling in, in terms of the ambitions Villa have um, for this coming season. They're, they're also looking for a striker, someone who can share or operate as a backup alternative to Ollie Watkins, a winger, a centre-back and a, and a backup goalkeeper. Well, the precedent was set with Emmy Martinez leaving Arsenal for uh, Aston Villa. So there's not exactly an unusual um, trip to make from uh, North London over to the Midlands. Um, So a little bit, I wouldn't say square pegs and round holes in some of those deals you mentioned, Duncan. Maybe triangles and round holes. As Sol Miguez is not a direct replacement for Bernardo Silva. Uh, As you said, Emil Pondia is not a direct replacement. Jack Grealish um, I think it's going to be quite ironic if Grealish ends up at the Etihad because uh, as we know Manchester City are the experts in tactical fouling and Grealish is the expert in winning tactical fouls so uh, they'll have both sides of the coin should Grealish join them uh, this summer maybe some good news for Arsenal is their pursuit of Wolverhampton Wonders Ruben Neves a player who's made a real impact since arriving at Molyneux, Duncan. What is the state of play with Neves uh, and leaving, as well as uh, what would you expect the price to be? <laughs> the price is the, the big question, and um, that will be up to Fosun to decide. Uh, as we told you some months ago, the Wolves need to raise money in this transfer market. Um, they have Bruno Lage coming in, a story we broke, uh, I think, in April, that he'd been identified as a replacement for you know, Espirito Santo, who's, who's still deciding on which club he will go to, having lots of uh, discussions with a couple of other Premier League clubs, Crystal Palace and, and Everton at present. Um, Neves has been placed on the market, Adama Traore on the market, um, Pedro Neto on the market, although the, the serious injury he suffered is, uh, is a detriment to doing that, that sale this summer. Um, Arsenal have begun working on that deal. Uh, they would see Neves as a replacement for Granit Xhaka, who's trying to get to Roma at the moment uh, to be part of Jose Mourinho's midfield there. Um, I think the, 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 the question is what have Fosun balked at before? Well, in 2019, they were offered 60 million for Neves and said no. They wanted 80 million at that point. The contract has obviously reduced by two years um, since then. We'll say they've got three years of additional contract on the deal. Um, discussion of it would possibly be 50 million euros as an asking price this summer, but the price hasn't been established yet. And um, I think there is definitely the prospect of competition from other clubs for Neves. Now they know he's available. Now Arsenal have put a move in play. If a price can be established, um, I think you you probably see other clubs trying to, to get him as well. Now, a lot of speculation, Duncan, over the position of Sean Dyche at Burnley. Um, Dyche was heavily, heavily linked by with replacing Roy Hodgson at Crystal Palace. It's something which never really materialised despite the momentum that it had. 
and Dyche himself inferred at certain points last season that perhaps he'd taken Burnley as far as he could. Maybe it was time for a new challenge. However, the board at Burnley have um, come up with what they hope is a solution to keep their manager. Yeah, Dyche has been there since um, 2012, which is uh, quite a run for for any coach, taking them obviously into the Premier League and kept them there. Um, yeah, right. He's been mentioned as a as a strong candidate for Crystal Palace. Um, kind of the it's almost the same type of manager, Roy Hodgson, in terms of the way he sets teams up and the and the, and the way he has them playing. Um, which is given that Crystal Palace's plan has been has been to get um, younger players into the team, um, change and play a more adventurous type of football. Um, try and uh, change the balance of their squad which they will be able to do because a, a number of their senior players are are now out of contract so the new manager coming in can uh, can make quite substantial changes there um dice doesn't seem the obvious fit um if you, if you want to make those radical changes burnley have been worried about losing him he has one year left on his current contract i'm told they've made him an offer of a long-term deal with a pay rise um, to around £6 million a year. Um, substantial extension in terms of security. He would retain the powers he has over the transfer market, where, which are just about as strong as anyone in the Premier League at present. It basically had authority over, over the direction of the club delegated to him in a way that few managers have these days. But Burnley are unsure. They're, they're concerned. Um, that he will decide to go elsewhere. There was an indication from a, a well-placed journalist at the weekend that Daesh had decided to um, stay at Burnley. I think given what's been happening with Nuno Espirito Santo and Crystal Palace um, over the last 24 hours, um, we will probably see an opportunity for Crystal Palace to decide whether Daesh is the guy they want to go for and whether they're going to make an offer for him and, and make him make a call over that new contract he's been offered at Burnley or not. My information in terms of Dyche Duncan is that uh, he'll need more than a substantial pay rise and a contract extension to be persuaded to stay. Most of uh, the aggravation and friction he's had with the board has been over player recruitment. He feels like he has not been given assets which uh, reflect adequately the achievements uh, of the last two, three seasons and also, of course, Burnley staying in the Premier League as well. Dice is ambitious. He wants to uh, take Burnley further up the table. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if he sees himself as a future England manager, not in the image of Roy Hodgson, but perhaps in more in the image of supersized Sam. However, that is a long way away as yet. But we, of course, will bring you the news first here on the Transfer Wonder podcast of any incomings at Burnley. Lots of fanfare, Duncan, about the appointment of Fabio Patrici as sport director at Tottenham Hotspur. This is certainly a departure for Daniel Levy, who, as we know, likes to control everything at the football club, even if some people in the club say that's not true. Um, he also uh, is someone who likes to make decisions on transfers and Paratici's job, you would have thought as sport director would be to both identify players to come into the club as well as 
ascertain the information required on fee and contract cost, etc. Yes, of course, Lever will have the final sign-off, but Paratici, uh, used to working uh, in Italy, uh, does usually have that power, both at Juventus and Inter. Uh, it would be a difficult, potentially explosive relationship um, should it not quite go uh, the way that it's been sold to Paratici. Look, I, I, I'm, as are a number of people I speak to in European football, stunned that Daniel Levy is doing this. Um, it hasn't been formally announced yet, but uh, the word is that the job is Paratici's. Um, new sports director coming in and Tottenham are happy um, for it to be reported that all football matters will be delegated to Paratici um, with Daniel Levy just uh, working on the on the fin final financials. Paratici was effectively sacked by Juventus. Um, he was one of the conditions that Max Allegri placed upon John Elkin um, to persuade him to come back uh, to Juventus as coach and sort out the problems which saw them drop to fourth in, in Serie A and only just get fourth place in Serie A this season. Um, it was one of the conditions that Allegri needed to step away from the, the agreement he had to become Real Madrid coach because he had had such a difficult time working with Paratici and didn't want to work with him again. Blamed him uh, for his removal as coach a couple of years ago. That was Paratici's plan to change the coaching staff, which he sold to Andrea Agnelli, um, with Maurizio Sarri coming in unsuccessfully, and then another change to Andrea Pirlo and, and, a, and another unsuccessful move. Juventus' finances are a mess. Um, they have Cristiano Ronaldo in the team, but are trying to shift them out. They've got a number of other um, older players that they've, they've signed on massive contracts. Um, quite often under freedom of contract, for example, Aaron Ramsey. The balance hasn't worked in the squad. The squad's got poorer. And Paratici had a big part in all of that. Yet, Levy is taking him to be a sports director when um, over a year ago, when, when Jose Mourinho uh, proposed Luis Campos as a sports director, Levy didn't want to get involved in, in that discussion. Um, it's going to be fascinating to see how it pans out. The first job, obviously, is to get a manager. They're, they're having big problems with that. Um, I hear uh, that there is an additional candidate they're, they're working on um, in the shape of uh, Julian Lopetegui, um, who could uh, be a solution for them if they can't get one of their um, earlier choices that Lopetegui is liked by Tottenham um, and likely to be re recommended to them by Paratici. Um, certainly has a good track record in, uh, of work at Sevilla, winning the Europa League in 2020 and finishing third and fourth, getting them into the Champions League two years running, but extended his contract in January until 2024. The other, and I think the, the priority for Tottenham, if they can make it happen, remains Maurizio Pochettino. As we, uh, we told you on the podcast last week, Leonardo's position at PSG as sports director is in doubt. Qatar are making a decision over that at the moment. They're looking at alternative candidates. In fact, Paratici was one of the, the potential um, replacements for Leonardo. Leonardo's relationship with Pochettino is bad. Um, and there is a feeling that if Qatar decide to retain Leonardo, 
Pochettino will make another move to get out of the club. He tried to do that first by getting the Real Madrid job when Allegri fell through. Secondly, um, by um, encouraging talks with Tottenham. So I'm hearing that there, there's a bit of a waiting game there in that, that Tottenham are hoping Pochettino might open up and then looking at alternative candidates such as Lopetegui if that doesn't happen. I'm guessing um, Paratici will soon find out exactly what kind of mandate he has, Duncan, if he goes to Daniel Levy and says, okay, this squad needs strengthening in this, 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 in this position. You're not going to give me the money uh, to get the, the players that we need in order to compete at that level. Therefore, we're going to sell Harry Kane. Yeah, look, that, that, is, that is the big option open to Tottenham. And, and Kane wants to leave. Kane's made it quite clear he wants to leave. Um, he is on that, that list of, of forwards for Manchester United. Um, his preference, his personal preference, seems to be to move to Manchester City. Chelsea have an interest, but don't think Levy would sell to them. Um, but it is an option for Tottenham and Paratici and Daniel Levy to say, OK, um, we grant you your wish, Harry Kane, we, but we expect well over £100 million as the transfer fee. And, and then you have uh, a lot of resource to invest in changing the team, which is what you'd expect a new sporting director to want to have. I, I don't know what Paratici's position is on Kane. I haven't asked that. But it would be typical for a new sports director coming into a club where he, he knows there are financial issues to want to generate revenue in order to place his mark on, on the team. One Premier League champion who is leaving not for over £100 million, but indeed for free, is Liverpool's uh, Dutch midfielder, Gini Wijnaldum. He had agreed, Duncan, we, we understand, to join Barcelona, something which you reported a long time ago, um, but has since changed his mind and will instead sign for Paris Saint-Germain. And this has become quite an interesting situation because your information is that Wijnaldum will actually have to pay Barcelona in order to get to Paris. Yes, um, it, it's a fascinating uh, transaction, this one, and that Wijnaldum to Barcelona was agreed a couple of months ago um, and had a pre-contract deal, which, as, as we told you in the, on the podcast, had an expiry date, and Barcelona failed to activate the, the pre, turn the pre-contract into a full contract um, before the date expired. Bayern Munich came in, and made an offer to Wijnaldum. Wijnaldum took that back to Barcelona, ultimately decided he would commit to Barcelona. Um, another pre-contract agreement was drawn up. Barcelona thought they had their man. He was actually due to take a med his medical this Monday and to be announced this week. And then Paris Saint-Germain came in with a um, hugely improved offer over the terms Wijnaldum had accepted with Barcelona. Wijnaldum went back to Barcelona and said he, according to Barcelona, that they he wanted to be paid the same amount um, to go to them rather than PSG. Barcelona said, no way, we can't do this. Um, the brief from Barcelona is that the, the wages Wijnaldum was expecting were double the amount, the already substantial amount he'd agreed to, to move there. Um, however, there is a, because he has broken his, his pre-contract agreement, Barcelona, what I expect to be compensated for that breach of that contract. Now, in principle, Wijnaldum will have to pay that, 
Um, but I think in practice, the money will come from Paris Saint-Germain um, because that's the way these, these things are organised. Indeed, I was going to make that point. <laughs> the money will certainly not be coming out of Jeannie's wallet, that's for sure. So from Jeannie Van Aldum and his uh, roundabout story, we have Nuno Espirito Santo and the mystery of the Palace of Smoke and Mirrors. <laughs> former Wolves boss was supposed to be signing, according to most media outlets, this week, and suddenly the whole thing was called off. We know that Everton were also interested in them and may still be. Duncan, you have got a lot more detail on this, and it is an intriguing tale of uh, claim and counterclaim. I, again, last week's podcast, we discussed that Everton had spoken to, to Nuno and that he had also talked to Crystal Palace. Um, previous to that, he'd been impressed um, by Steve Parrish uh, and liked what he heard from Crystal Palace. But Everton, um, the more attractive job was the, the, the guidance I'd had, but no definite decision taken. Um, on Monday, there were further talks between um, Nuno Espirito Santo and Everton. Uh, in fact, I understand that Farhad Mashiri was in London on Monday to conduct those talks and was um, confident that they could come to an agreement. Um, the guidance I had from Nuno's camp was that no agreement would happen that, uh, that day. The following day, there were um, talks between Crystal Palace and Nuno Espirito Santo, um, and those progressed to the extent where Palace thought they had their man, thought they had an agreement, uh, and it even gone to the point of drawing up contracts which they expected to be signed yesterday evening. Um, my understanding is that Everton continued to push uh, Nuno, particularly after they heard that he was close to joining Crystal Palace, and that Nuno was unable to decide between the two clubs. Um, which was the which was the best of the offers currently on the the table to him. Since then, Crystal Palace have briefed that they are out. Um, that they have uh, uh, finished their discussions with Nuno because he had uh, increased his demands overnight, and they would be looking at other candidates. Um, Everton, I'm told, have been in contact separately with Christophe Gaultier's agent, so they have been looking at, at some alternatives options. Um, they've had a lot of names placed to them. Um, the guidance I have on their strategy is that they, they feel they need to have a, a ready-made um, manager, an experienced manager, ideally one who knows the Premier League, um, can fit straight into their camp, not make too many radical changes in terms of uh, coaching philosophy. Um, not be experimental in the way they're working, just take a, a, a methodology that they've used successfully at another club, apply it to Everton and uh, progress them in the way they've been expecting to do with Carlo Ancelotti, but ultimately didn't, wasn't reflected in, their, in uh, the final league position. So they're, they're wary about taking a risk in this appointment, which would explain why they're pushing so hard for Nuno because you're looking there at someone who has three-year track record in the Premier League, um, very high achievement in terms of results with Wolves in his first two seasons, beyond the expectation achievements in his first two seasons and, and a difficult third season, but one that's easily explicable in terms of injuries to um, key striker Raul Jimenez um, uh, and the, the problems of, of navigating the COVID season. So 
final decision to be made if Crystal Palace's brief is accurate. Nuno no longer has the option of going there and, uh, and his option in the Premier League at present is Everton. Um, unless another club comes in, it would, you would expect him to end up as Everton manager. Isn't it remarkable, Duncan, that when David Moyes has an advanced stage of new contract negotiations with West Ham, that his name should be mentioned for going back to Everton? I think I think that's that. To be fair, that's a genuine one. Um, as we've discussed in the podcast when when we we talked about the the Everton situation, that you've got a board split there. You have Bill Kenwright, um, who would like David Moyes to come back, or um, Roberto Martinez. Basically, every time uh, Everton have a managerial vacancy, Kenwright proposes David Moyes or Roberto Martinez, who are two of his own previous picks. You have Farhad Mashiri, who is the 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 titular owner of the club, but um, um, Alisher Usmanov is actually the, uh, the the man in control of uh, of the shares of the club. Um, he has a degree of authority of Kia Jarabshin, um, who's close to both of those individuals, recommending uh, managers. Then you have Marcel Brands as the sports director, who who would like his say on who the manager would be. It's a it's a complicated scenario they have there. And I think it explains a lot of the problems that, that Everton have, have suffered over the last few years um, and why this appointment becomes so important for them to get right. Gloriously, the transfer window is open, but we're going to have to bring this particular pod to a close. We'll do so with Hero and Villain. And Duncan, your hero, please, for this week. Yeah, a hero based on on some sad news that... Um, Yu Sung Cho, who was a, a central midfielder, was a key part of uh, the 2002 South Korea national team um, that made the, the semi-final of the World Cup against pretty much everyone's expectations, uh, died of cancer this week. Um, that had particular resonance to me as that was the first World Cup I covered and, and I was charged with covering the South Korean side of the World Cup, spent a lot of time with the South Korean national team. He loved watching their football with Gusedink as as the coach. Um, you was one of the one of the key elements in a, in a midfield of extremely hard working midfield. Obviously, um, I think the most most famous of the players to come out of it, Park Ji Sung, uh, was a young player who was based in Japan at the time, uh, where I was uh, working for a newspaper. Um, just a really exciting uh, side to watch and and in an amazing atmosphere where um, you know, you'd get these stadia that were wall-to-wall red home Korean supporters um, chanting in a way I've never heard before. Um, just such an impressive performance and an, an impressive event. And uh, you, interestingly, I didn't know this at the time, but you was playing in Japanese football, um, had been at, at uh, Yokohama Marinos and, and moved to Kashiwa Resol. At the point when he was sold from Korean football to Japanese football, Barcelona wanted to take him um, on trial and uh, and his club in Korea blocked that because they already had a financial agreement with Marinos. So maybe he could have been a player who didn't simply do it on the world stage at the World Cup and he scored in that World Cup. He could have been a player who uh, who did it in European football as well if it hadn't been for the the control that the Korean club had in, in saying, oh, you go to Japanese football, we don't give you a chance in Europe. And of course, our thoughts and sympathies are with 
use friends and family at this time. Going on to the villain, well, it's a fairly obvious one this week, and that is, for well, I guess two sets of villains. One, the England fans who booed when their own players took the knee ahead of the two friendlies that have been played in prior to Euro 2020 starting. Um, really, how you can possibly justify booing your own team before they even start a game is beyond me, especially when their stance is specifically about racial equality and social justice. But maybe even worse, our politicians have waded into this debate and then there was a top Tory who likened taking the knee to doing a Nazi salute. Of course, the Nazis were well known for fighting for racial equality and social injustice. So that's my villain of the week. And you've been listening to the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. You can reach us on all our social media channels and give us a nice five-star review on iTunes. Get Duncan on that Duncan Castles and me on that Carpost J. We'll be back with you later in the week. Stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Hey.